Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 6th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Sprint champion Shakari Richardson's marijuana suspension and the future of weed and sports. Amira Rose Davis of the podcast Burn It All Down will also be here to discuss Gwen Berry's plans to protest at the Olympics in the past and present of Black women activists in sports. And finally, we'll look at the first week of new name, image, and likeness rules for college athletes. They're making money in weird and wild ways, and the earth continues to rotate. I am in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of the new podcast, One Year, which debuts this Thursday. Woohoo! Yeah. Subscribe, please. If you guys could see, my beard is very long, so you know that the show's uh, good if it's distracted me from shaving for this long. Podcast beard. Exactly. It's like a playoff beard. Also, in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And Stefan is beardless now, so he hasn't been working very hard. Now, or playing in the Stanley Cup Finals. Neither one. With us from wherever it is that he is, it's Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6, Joel Anderson, who's in the middle ground beard-wise this week. Yeah, this is the same beard that I've always had. I mean, just been in between me and Stefan on the beard, the hang-up beard gradient. Do you think your beard is that much more thick than mine? Oh, I'm not certain about that. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe I was a little bit cocky about my beard depth. Yeah, don't get out ahead of yourself there. Get over your skis. This is an impressive beard in its own right. It's it's an important moment of humility for me at the top of the show. (laughs) One notable thing about sprinter Shakari Richardson's positive test for marijuana at last month's U.S. track and field trials was that she didn't deny or apologize for using pot. She said she was trying to cope with the stress of learning from a reporter that her biological mother had died. She did apologize for, quote, the fact that I didn't know how to control my emotions or deal with my emotions during that time, which she didn't need to apologize for. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency gave Richardson the most lenient possible suspension one month, but her victory at the trials in the 100 meters was invalidated, so she won't be allowed to run that event in Tokyo. She still could be named to the women's 4x100 relay team because that race is more than a month from the date of her suspension. Rules are rules, Joel, and Richardson must have known that she was taking a risk. But banning THC, especially in aerobic sports like track and swimming, arguably has nothing to do with performance enhancement or competition integrity. And this great and compelling athlete is deprived from doing her main thing. And we're deprived from watching her because of outdated sportocratic rules. I'm not happy about that. I try very hard not to be a rules or rules guy. I think it absolves people of the privilege of thinking, right? Because rules aren't intrinsically good and fair because they're on the books. And we know that for all sorts of reasons, particularly in this country that there's been rules used to justify all kinds of unfairness, discrimination, et cetera. 
And in a world where not very many Black women get to be global icons or presented with moments that could create real wealth, I'm really hurt and disappointed that Shakari is missing out on this opportunity. Maybe the way to think about this is in two different ways. There's a way of looking specifically at Shakari and then more broadly at WADA and if its testing protocols make sense. And I think that Shakari caught a really bad break and took this L on the chin in a really admirable way. Like, imagine, like, going through this at the age of 21 years old. I've been really impressed with how she's handled it. And I just, you know, mostly for her sake, I wish she hadn't smoked so close to competition, could have made it to the other side of this and competed at the 100. But more broadly, and I said this a few weeks ago when we had David Epstein on, I wonder about the need to monitor athletes in this way. Because first, it's all a piece of this nation's broader and widely acknowledged failure of a drug war that this sort of came up in the late 90s is meant to monitor people's drug usage. And second, and this sort of goes back to our conversations about like inclusion for trans athletes or whatever else. I'm interested in this idea of fair competition, which like maybe we should reconsider as a whole. Because we know that there's actually no such thing as fair competition, whether through training or diet or any other literal physical advantages that athletes have. And so it all comes from the same well, like monitoring drugs, drug intake, all this other stuff. And I'm just wondering if maybe this is an opportunity for the IOC, for WADA, to reconsider like how we got here in the first place. Because it just, in the end of the day, it just seems stupid, doesn't it, Josh? It does seem stupid. I think Dave Epstein and his newsletter range report did a good job of laying out what some of the misconceptions are here. And one of the issues is that these rules are set down by the World Anti-Doping Agency to govern 206 Olympic committees in all sports. And so he said that there's only maybe one example of a drug that's banned in one particular sport and not in others. And so these are one-size-fits-all rules for countries have different views and approaches on different drugs, different sports will necessarily think about performance enhancement in different ways with regard to different drugs. You have different states like Oregon, where Shakari Richardson was because the Olympic trials were there, where weed is legal. And so back to what you were saying with rules or rules, well, yeah, she did violate a rule, but there were other <laughs> rules and laws that she didn't violate depending on you know what the context was. And it brings to mind to me the conversation around Tyron Matthew when he was at LSU and he got kicked off the football team for first, it was a s- synthetic marijuana suspension, then it was a positive marijuana test. And there was just this really divergent set of opinions around, well, why would he throw all of this away knowing that they were testing for weed? And why don't you just not smoke and not get kicked off the team? Like, how hard is that? And then on the other side, the argument that like, he's not harming anyone. It's not it's not a performance enhancer, no matter how it's classified. And so what are we doing as like a school, as a society? And also like, millions upon millions of people are engaging in this activity both legally and illegally with no repercussions at all, as opposed to like the repercussion being getting kicked out of the Olympics. So that just seems disproportionate. You know, I think what the Shakari Richardson thing has done in a really helpful way, and it's through the way that she's handled it and talked about it, is spotlighted the kind of pain that she was in to make this bad decision, she really screwed up. She And she did this to herself in a way that she acknowledged. And so I think it helps you to understand why someone would do this because they're in like 
a bad headspace. It's not because she's stupid. It's not because she was just like willfully throwing things away. It just shows how sad she was, how upset she was, how she wasn't really thinking right. And so then instead of extending empathy and allowing someone to make a mistake, it not only seems really wrong, it is really wrong. And yet there is a way, Stefan, in which hands are tied here. And I guess my question for you is, does that seem like a cop-out to say, well, the rules are the same for 206 countries. You can't just give leeway to the United States here. In what ways do you think grace could have been extended? And in what ways do you think this has just played out how it should, that she is getting sympathy, that she did acknowledge that she made a mistake and she will be able to run in the four by one? Yeah, let's stipulate that she's handled this about as well as someone could handle it. She went on the Today Show and made those comments. She was contrite. Again, not for having done what she did because of her mental state and her grief and her anxiety, whatever she was feeling about what she had learned, but because it jeopardized her ability to run in the Olympics and it reflects badly on her sponsors, she said, and the people that have supported her and her coaches and the people that have gotten to know her since the Olympic trials. Who knew nothing about Shakari Richardson, right? This is not a famous athlete. This is somebody who was going to get, this was her Olympic moment. One of those athletes that will become familiar to everybody who's paying attention to sports over the course of those two weeks that the Olympics are held. What does it reflect, Josh? It reflects an absolute inflexibility on the part of these gigantic sportocratic organizations. The head of the U.S. anti-doping agency came out and basically said, this is stupid, we shouldn't be testing, and I feel badly for her, but we have no choice, our hands are tied. So as long as there are going to be these gigantic organizations who take upon themselves the authority for regulating every sport in this cookie-cutter way— I just don't know how you get around it. Somebody pointed out, I think it was Epstein, actually, it was Dave, in his newsletter that if we start making exceptions, well, guess what? The Russian Federation would have made a lot of exceptions for the actual cheating that its athletes engaged in at its behest during the Winter Olympics and in other sports a few years ago. So the small answer is that Shakari Richardson's positive test and the sympathy, the outpouring of sympathy for her is certainly going to, I think, lead to change in terms of how the World Anti-Doping Agency regulates THC. But this is whack-a-mole when it comes to drugs and performance enhancement and how we treat athletes and how we punish them. One thing that has been really encouraging, in addition to the idea that maybe the ILC, maybe the U.S. track are going to move forward on this, is the way that even as a society that we're treating Shakari Richardson, right? Like, it does seem that there's mm-hmm. been some growth. I mean, you mentioned Taran Matthew, Josh, but I also think back to when Ricky Williams tested positive in the NFL and then retired as a result. And it was like he was a huge, for lack of a better term, fuck up. You know, like people thought that he had thrown his whole life and his career away for weed. Even as we knew. Yeah, a weirdo, right? He was he was sort of branded a weirdo. Even though we knew that he had social anxiety disorder, which is mm-hmm. another thing that we didn't really have the tool. I mean, maybe we had the tools, but just not the empathy to think about and, and, and regard him in that way. So it has been encouraging that people are less fixated on Shakari as like a fuck up and as somebody who was in pain and medicated herself in that way. But I also, like touching on something else you guys said, I still go back on this idea that 
well, if the Americans don't test for something or whatever, if we just open things up, then Russia is going to do it. And again, I'm just like, man, we're talking about athletics and sports. Nobody is ever really able to come up with any consistent rules for what constitutes an unfair advantage. Anything can be a performance enhancer to a certain degree, right? Like, I mean, anything that you take, you could probably find some sort of thing. Oh, this person, alcohol lessened their anxiety or whatever. Like, it's like a shot. I don't, you know, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you want it to be that credulous about a claim of what constitutes a fair and unfair advantage, you could go down the line and be that dumb about it. And so I guess I'm just like, why are we not reconsidering this whole idea of putting people through this battery and protocol of tests and that changes over and over again. Like these lists change, the substances that are listed on them change over time, all the time. So it just seems like maybe like we're going in the wrong direction if we're asking these organizations to just reconsider how they're doing and say, hey, why are you doing this in the first place? Well, the move towards the kind of biological passport model as opposed to testing for substances, I think in some ways the biological passport is more invasive, right? It's like giving these agencies access to all of your data about what's going on inside your body. But it does seem more accurate as Dave Epstein talked to us about when we were, when we were discussing Shelby Houlihan and her burrito. It seems more accurate as a way to determine fluctuations that might be unnatural in people's bodies, but also seems like a way that we could maybe move past this approach that you're describing, Joel, of a substance-by-substance approach and like, oh, is this thing available in a convenience store or is this thing legal in Oregon and all of that. It does seem like the direction we're, we're moving in, but I also feel like a lot of times we widen out conversations a little bit wider than they need to be. This is just about marijuana and the solution is to not ban marijuana anymore. And like that would fix this specific problem, but it would also fix some bigger problems. And we've seen like the thing that WADA couldn't do that like the NBA and NFL do, Stefan. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Basically what the NBA and NFL have done is keep some sort of nominal testing in place, but basically signal to the players, you can smoke or do edibles or whatever you want. And we're going to only test during a couple of weeks in training camp or whatever it is that, that they do. It's just moving the way the country's been moving. But that's the case here too, Josh. It's not appropriate to talk about decriminalization in the context of sports, but it's basically like not a full elimination of all rules, but a re relaxing them in some ways that it's like an acknowledgement that weed is just like a part of Americans' lives, or I guess in the case of the NBA, international players' lives too. Yeah, to be fair though, you the Olympic movement has gone in that direction. They only test for weed in competition, during competition. So there has been some progress there. And the next step here is clearly to not test for this at all and to throw out the arguments that, well, in some contexts, you don't want somebody who's riding a bicycle at 70 miles per hour to be high. Okay, that might make sense. So th the idea of sport-by-sport -sport regulation for certain drugs is probably sensible. But doesn't testing only in competition, theoretically, maybe that's better, but like actually in practice, isn't that much worse? If you're going to do one or the other, wouldn't it make more sense to test out of competition? Because then in this case, if somebody's on weed, you take away their medals. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't seem more kind of sensible or relaxed. You know, none of it makes any sense. The, the bigger picture, I think, and the thing that you alluded to earlier, Joel, is that how we scrutinize athletes and whether we need to be more attuned to the pressures that they face you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and what we expect of them. Lindsey Krauss had a good piece about this in the New York Times last week. She wrote that 
the best athletes are already under this extraordinary pressure to perform. But on top of that, we ask for this extraordinary conduct in their personal lives that have absolutely nothing to do with how they play. And that's exactly what we saw here. We saw a, a woman who was struggling and not in a good, as you said, Josh, good headspace. And sympathy is what was required, and sympathy is what she received from everybody, it seems, except for the people who could grant her a waiver and say, we understand what you did, and we believe you, and therefore we are not going to issue the most draconian punishment possible, which is to keep you from competing in your event at the Olympics. There's no leeway there, and that's what was needed. I wonder, Joel, if one of the issues here is the, like, Shelby Houlihan burrito issue, <laughs> which is that we've come to think for good reason that every time athletes make an excuse that they're lying. And so yeah. <laughs> this idea of, like, extending grace or empathy, either we feel like they're all lying, so why should they get it? Or that if you do extend it in this one case where we have good reason to believe that she is telling the truth, then that would be taken advantage of by other athletes? The one thing that we know for certain, well, I think we know this for certain, is that all athletes are going to take all the available advantages that they can avail themselves of, right? And so I can't really divine the difference between why people are taking Shikari at face value and not Shelby Houlihan, but for the fact that Shelby Houlihan's excuse sounded ridiculous. Eating a pork burrito or whatever, right? We do know that athletes are going to try to stay on the very cutting edge of this stuff. And it's been 25 years and football teams were handing out creatine to players. And all of a sudden that stopped. That wasn't allowed at the NCAA anymore. They weren't allowed to hand you out these big tubs of creatine. All this stuff is constantly evolving and constantly changing. But one thing we do know is that athletes are going to be out front on it. One other quick thing is that we are talking about this national mood. We're moving towards the acceptance of marijuana use and that sort of stuff and marijuana sales, whatever. And I live in a state where you can order weed to your front door, like legally, which would have seemed impossible 20 years ago. It would have come in handy 20 years ago when I was in college. But now we talk about all these other states or whatever, but I'm like right now, I'm currently, you said I was in an undisclosed location, Josh. I'm in Texas. And Texas is a place where Alex Caruso just got arrested the other week for marijuana possession. Alex Caruso being the Los Angeles Lakers guard. So it's not quite as progressive out there in a lot of precincts in this country. And so like, I think that we're still grappling with what direction we want to go. Like, it clearly seems to be moving in a much better direction where we're being a little bit more open to the idea that, hey, marijuana is totally a reasonable substance to, to partake of. But there are a lot of places in this country where that's not quite resolved yet. And like, that's the sort of argument, the sort of debating point that ensnared Shakari Richardson right now. Up next, Amira Rose Davis on Gwen Berry and Black women athletes and activism. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter decrees that no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. If you want to blame international sportocrats for that rule, which will be in place during the Tokyo Games, you are well within your rights to do so. But it's also worth noting that two-thirds of the 3,457 athletes surveyed by the International Olympics Committee's Athletes Commission said that podium protests were not appropriate. One athlete who disagrees with that take is the hammer thrower Gwen Berry. Berry got suspended for 12 months for throwing her fist in the air during the 2019 Pan Am Games. And she recently turned away from the flag during the medal ceremony at the U.S. Olympic trials. As far as what she'll do in Tokyo, Barry says, it depends on what I want to do in that moment and what I want to do for my people in that moment. Joining us now is Amira Rose Davis. She is an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State, also a co-host of the excellent Burn It All Down podcast. Amira, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's start with Gwen Berry before we get to the broader issues here. You've reported on Gwen a lot over the years. And so you have some insight into this question, which is what's changed for her since the 2019 Pan Am Games as an athlete and as an activist? Yeah, I think the question of what's changed is both a lot and not a lot at the same time. Back in 2019, she protested at the Pan American Games, and the response institutionally was to discipline her and raise Imadine as well, who protested at those games, to put them on probation and really very publicly send a message using them as examples that the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee was not going to, and USA Track and Field, was not going to stand for these kind of political displays on the medal stand. At the time, Gwen, as an activist, knew that she was unsettled by the anthem, but she was also talking about personal journey to that moment. She was talking about growing up in Ferguson, not far from where Mike Brown lived and was murdered. And I think really driving motivation for her two years ago at that time. Now, of course, if you fast forward just nine months and we're living in a global pandemic, and then, of course, George Floyd and, and the murder of George Floyd moves in needle a lot in both corporate responses and in the kind of resurgence of Black Lives Matter. And it crosses the bounds of where it usually was. We're starting to see lay white people get involved in corporations. And yes, U.S. Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee and USA Track and Field. And when they put out their statement of Black Lives Matter, Gwen very publicly said, well, that's funny, I'm still on probation for saying essentially the same thing just a few months earlier. They very publicly took her off probation at that time. And so when we fast forward to what we saw at the with her mental stand protests recently at the U.S. trials for the Tokyo Olympics, that wasn't going to come with discipline from the U.S. Olympic or Paralympic Committee, U.S. track and field. That's a major win for the athletes who have worked on the Social Justice Council to get that approved and not penalized. You also have backing. She has color of change backing her, Puma backing her, whereas in 2019, sponsors were fleeing and sparse. And I think that's really important to know. And then lastly, as an activist, I think she's continued to grow and 
advocate tirelessly for her community, for her people. She's continued to read and just grow as a scholar. And she's very firm on the anthem, especially that third verse that talks about slaves and the enslaved not speaking for her and her community. And so I think that is where she's at today with it. And I also think it's important to note that the anthem was not expected to be played at the trial. So everything that we saw and everything that then went viral was also not this kind of predetermined thing, but was a kind of spur of the moment reaction to anthem suddenly being played at a time where it was unexpected. Can I just jump in real briefly, Amir, and ask you, because you have talked to Gwen, do you think that she was set up? Because Gwen seems to believe that she was set up in that moment. And I totally understand why she feels like that for a number of reasons. One, the national anthem is played once at trials, like at the beginning of the event. It's not played for every medal stand because one, they're all competing for the same nation and two, you would be there for two weeks. And so that's fairly uncommon. The second is that the hammer throwers, according to Gwen, according to Mashami Robinson, who's on the USA track and field Paralympic and Olympic Social Justice Committee, as well as other attendees who are at trials who I've spoken to, noted that the hammer throwers were told that they were going to play the anthem before or after their medal stand moment and giving them a heads up in case they needed to hold. And they didn't play it before, so they were given the green light to go onto the stand and then the anthem started playing. If the anthem hasn't been played all day and you're told specifically it's not going to be played when you're on the medal stand and you know that there's eyes on you in terms of that space and that protest that you've done before, I absolutely understand why it feels like a setup. Now, talking to Mashami Robinson, she was like, it was an unfortunate coincidence, right? Somebody had to press play on that. And one of the things that people are asking for is a level of transparency. Who pressed play? Who was told to press play? Was this a game of telephone that got lost in the details? Or was there something more nefarious going on here? And I can't sit here and say, oh, she wasn't set up. And I can't tell Gwen not to feel like that because after the years that she's had in this space, that is one of many logical conclusions. The criticism that Gwen Berry has suffered since uh, since the trials has mainly been confined to the places you would expect it to be confined, Fox News, Dan Crenshaw. On the one hand, it's annoying, but I imagine for her that this is what you want. Her response on Twitter was, at this point, y'all are obsessed with me, which gets her point across and allows her to be more of a public figure and a genuine activist. I'm a representative of the United States that's going to the Olympics and is unafraid. Do, do you view it that way? Like that this is part and parcel of, of being an activist and she recognizes that clearly. Yes and no. I mean, I think that she certainly wants attention on on the work that she's doing with Activist Athlete, on the shirts that she is selling and fundraising with, on the activism that her and many other people have been doing. But I don't think anybody can want the vitriol and the terrible messages. But I think that part of that's part of the calculation. It was her birthday week. And she's been inundated with messages that have told her to go back to Africa, that have called her all sorts of names under the sun, that have dug through her past history and tried to bring up things to embarrass and humiliate her, that have gone after her family. And I think that there's, on one hand, absolutely, there's a history. We know the cost of activism, right? Tommy Smith and John Carlos. 
tell us this, right? Other activists who we don't remember their names because they were so disposed of are reminders of this. And so I think that she absolutely knows that that's a burden to bear and she's unafraid to bear that burden. But I think that Gwen, like many activists, would rather control how they are able to get their message out and amplify it. And a lot of times this just feels like you're still on square one, that every conversation you've had for the last few years, every interview you've given, every piece you've written, every panel you've been on has been for naught because people are still asking the same questions or using you symbolically in ways that don't match up at all with what you're saying. I think specifically in this situation, a lot of the hate Gwen was getting was saying she hates America, she hates this flag, et cetera, et cetera. And she was saying, you said those words. I said this anthem doesn't represent me. And I think that a lot of what she was called to do on her birthday week was to just correct. And and I think that is very different than amplifying the work. You were alluding to, I think, some of the tweets that resurfaced that she made 10 years ago that were not great tweets. It doesn't mean that she's a bad person or that she hasn't grown and changed in that period. I think the point to be made here is that there will be this digging into her past, into her present. Anything that she says and does or has ever said and done will be scrutinized and will be digested and spit back out at her. And that's the reality. And so you've been talking to her, Mira, you've been talking to other Black women athletes. And so can you just give us a sense of what those conversations are like? And we also, before you came on, we did a segment about Shakari Richardson and her marijuana suspension. So like, just what is the kind of ambient atmosphere now with all of this stuff kind of swirling in Tokyo coming in just a couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I would say overwhelming, exhausting are the words that immediately come to mind. I think certainly in the work that I do, I study Black women athletes as symbol, but also when they're disposable. And that has really, I think, been the overarching story for the last few weeks. So one of the things that they are talking about, pointing to USA Track and Field Black Lives Matter shirt with the 68 medal stand protest outside of the trials. And shout out to Victoria Jackson at ASU who captured this and brought this point up, we are able to profit off of the kind of specter of protest, but yet aren't really standing in defense of Gwen. And, and that makes people exhausted. I think one of the most interesting conversations I've had recently is with Anna Cockrell, who's a USC grad and, and going to the Olympics as a 400 meter hurdler. The clip of Anna went viral after her race. She was so joyous to have made the team. And one of the things that Anna said to me that I found particularly stirring was that a lot of the messages she started receiving were trying to make her a foil for Gwen, which were saying, oh, you're the great, you're grateful Mm. to be here. You're happy to be at the Olympics. And this is how she was positioned. And she was talking about how that felt really weird because, I mean, we've all sat on panels together with Gwen and Anna together who have both been mobilizing and organizing. Anna has done tremendous work organizing Black athletes at USC and Black collegiate athletes across the nation. And so for her to now exist only as this kind of quick viral crying caricature is something that she was wrestling with at one point, very happy to have her message of mental health out there and her joy captured. And then also feeling like, is that all I 
am now, where when people are calling me for interviews, they want to talk about my depression and I have so much more to say. And I think that is something that is is really felt, especially in light of just a few weeks ago, having all these conversations about Black women's mental health, specifically around Naomi Osaka. And I think that is absolutely at the forefront of the minds of many of the athletes I'm talking to, which is how do you protect your mental health when every day, especially in this past week, it's felt like news either about Shakira and her suspension or the runners who are being designated as not female enough to compete or the Afro swim caps. It just feels like every day you open up Twitter and there's another thing that's policing or scrutinizing the bodies and the abilities of Black women going to the Olympics. And I think juggling that with your joy, individual joy to be there and the kind of symbolic thing that you now represent is, is tough. It's sort of a misnomer to think of Team USA as like this one big organization of guys. You know, like everybody on the team knows everybody from the fencers to the steeplechase runners to members of the dream team, right? Like they're all, it's sort of disparate. But I've been struck by the idea that I don't know where a lot of their white teammates are on this. And what really brought that home was that the top two finishers in the hammer throw, Deanna Price and Brooke Anderson, they stood at attention, waved to the crowd during the national anthem. And I was curious if Gwen had noticed that, if she had made note of the fact that not a lot of people that were not Black athletes had come to her aid. Um, is that something that's come up? Yeah, I mean, certainly. And, and this has been, right, multi-years in the making. I think a lot of Black athletes know where their white counterparts stand. And, and some have been vocal like race, certainly, and some have been less so. And I think that doesn't mean that there aren't internal conversations. But I think that what's very clear to me is that folks tend to know, especially when you're breaking it down by sport, within track and field, these athletes tend to know where their allyship is going to come from and, and where it's not or what the limits of that look like. And so do I think it bothers some of them? Yeah, Definitely. But I think that especially in light of the conversations that have been going on this week with Rachel Nichols and Maria Taylor, I think that other feeling of who's saying something to me in private, who's saying something maybe publicly like they are supporting me, but maybe turning around and having different conversations, that that also contributes to the sense of kind of isolationism, which is you always have your head on a swivel. You're always checking to make sure you can fully trust those you're competing next to. And track and field, right, is a weird sport. Unless you're talking about the relays, you're on a team together, but they're really individual performances. I think that this conversation, once we start looking at some of the team sports, becomes a lot more interesting in many ways. Gwen wasn't the only athlete at the trials, the only Black woman athlete at the trials, who, who protested in some ways, and those have gotten much less attention. The IOC has said that they're setting sort of different rules that will allow athletes to demonstrate inside venues and in different places, all very regulated. Do you have a sense, Amira, of what we might expect in Tokyo in terms of what sorts of individual or coordinated protests athletes are willing to make? 
As we yeah. all know, the best form of protest is in a designated zone yes. <laughs> at a very specific time and stipulated when and how you can protest. That's how the best protests work. There'll be the mixed zone for talking to reporters and the protest zone. You can expect mess intentionally. So the IOC is a mess. And they've long been intentionally vague in this kind of gray area about this. And that's no different. So what you see from them is this kind of, okay, you can do it here in the Olympic Village, but you can't do this. And you can do, th- I think what's particularly been quite offensive this year is that they're like, you can't wear Black Lives Matter, but you can wear words like equality or freedom or education. And that- are like the names on the back of the jerseys in the NBA bubble. I was just about to say, this is the uh, Gordon Hayward education reform jersey. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is really telling. So I think in some ways, the, what I've appreciated about this from the IOC is it allow us to take a mirror and hold it back to the NBA, for instance, and say, what are those words doing exactly? If the IOC is good with it, then you know they're not doing very much. And so I think that that was something that really particularly struck a chord. When I talked to Michelle Robinson, she really honed in on this. And she said, as a member of the Social Justice Council, this was really frustrating, especially to the Black track and field athletes who understand how they factor into the sport in terms of the revenue that's built off of them, in terms of the TV time that's built off of them. Particularly, it felt very like being very singled out by the IOC. In terms of how this gets implemented and what athletes do, I mean, this is what we will continue to see because that gray area, the IOC really has usually relied on the various nation states to then police their own athletes. And if the U.S. Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee is like, hey, we're not going to do that. We might not support you, but we're not going to discipline you. I think we're going to be in this kind of weird gray area where we might see the IOC try to make some moves or, or seize some power and actually met out some punishment. It really is intentionally vague. And I think that's what's really hard about going into the Olympics and thinking about what you might do. But also, to your point, like activism, when it's all agreed upon, is not actually disruptive in the way that many activist athletes aim it to be. So I think that your guess in many ways is as good as mine, but I will certainly be watching. Yeah, and it's telling that the question for Gwen Berry is always like, what are you going to do at the Olympics, Gwen? What are you going to do at the Olympics? What are you going to do at the Olympics? I mean, it shows that for these athletes, and I think for Black women athletes in particular, that the Olympics is, in some cases, once in a lifetime, maybe if you're Allison Felix, five times in a lifetime, opportunity to really have the spotlight and be valued, to have your opinion be valued, to have people care about who you are and what you do in a way that is really not the case otherwise. And so that just puts a whole lot of pressure on everyone. It puts a lot of pressure on Gwen Berry. It puts a lot of pressure on the IOC. And I mean, it's all the conversations about Shakari Richardson. That's why that punishment is so severe is that, you know, it's taking away this opportunity that it's not like she can run in the Olympics like in three months or something. It's like it's over and done with. It's kind of like a a powder keg, right, Amira? And that's in some ways what makes this such an amazing opportunity. And Josh, that's also on top of the pressure to perform. They want to win medals. They they need to focus on their training. 
That's why I said when you said, what is Gwen going to do at the Olympics? She's going to throw. Yeah. She's going to do the hammer throw, right? Like, But I think that really is something to make note of because we're coming through a very strange Olympic cycle where there was real burdens placed on athletes who had to adjust for the Olympics being pushed for a year. I mean, Gwen specifically, you know, had to figure out, like, how do I survive? Like, how do I train? There was athletes who went back to cleaning homes, who went to Uber Eats, who were trying to figure out, you plan so meticulously for that shot every four years. To have that extended by a year, especially in the Olympic sport, is really hard. And you add in pandemic burnout, you add in like actual loss, health concerns, mental health, and a lot of the activism that people have been doing. It's been a, a huge burden to get to this point, which means it's that much more upsetting when you see people, whether it's Sha'Carri Richardson or it's Brianna McNeil, right? Like being in these situations where it feels like those opportunities, that moment is slipping through their their grasp. I know that this maybe is an antiquated notion, like nobody is going to be boycotting the Olympics. That's just not going to happen. There's too much at stake. But are you a little surprised that there hasn't been a little bit more talk of a collective boycott of the Olympics? The Olympics are bad. Like we know that the Olympics are bad in and of themselves. Just the whole concept and how they displace people, a tremendous use, waste of resources, all that other stuff. But I'm just surprised that there hasn't been a little bit more talk about that, even if even just cursory talk. I, I don't know how surprised I am, but also then sometimes I am surprised. I'm like really confused about this. I don't know if confused is the right word. So absolutely, the Olympics are terrible. My good friend Jules Boykoff wrote a great book called No Olympics. Everybody should check it out. I want to also shout out No Olympic activists who, whether they're talking about disrupting a bid by Boston or L.A., protesting the Olympics has been almost as long as the Olympics itself. We see a lot of people use that moment to mount various protests, but also to protest the games itself, to say, hey, you displace people, you know, you cause this harm, you build these structures that nobody will use, you leave all of this area worse than when you found it, and you're enormously corrupt. You're like, you know, second to maybe FIFA. And I think that activism on the ground has continued and actually only amplified since COVID. It's just that those stories don't necessarily cross over as much. So the people in Tokyo are really protesting. Hospitals are saying, hey, look, we're at capacity. The towns that usually host training camps are saying, no, we're having a spike here. You can't come. All of that is spurring more protests than usual. But then at the same time, it was like weird to see it like kind of rolling merrily along. And if you're watching at home, we've been conditioned to watch pandemic sport at this point. It's shot in a way that doesn't necessarily feel as different. You get your nice little inspirational packages. You get your personalities. I think where my surprise comes in is this particular iteration of calls for boycott is coming from different places. It's not coming from tired and true no Olympic activists, right? It's coming from lay consumers of sport who usually love the romanticism and excitement of the Olympics, especially Black folk who love to celebrate Black girl magic and Black excellence at the Olympic Games and after this past week, I think what I've seen on my timeline especially is people saying, let me get this straight. You're going to punish Sha'Carri for some for smoking a joint after she found out her mother died. You're going to police women out of competition because of uh, natural chromosomes. You're going to police an Afro swim cap. You're going to police Breonna McNeil and, and question her abortion. You're going to do all of these things. 
then absolutely, like, where's the boycott? How do we sign up? What used to be a space where you would just cheer for Black Girl Magic? Two weeks ago, you saw the memes were taking land, sea, and air with Simone Biles and Simone Manuel and Shakari on it. Those are fewer and, and farther between this week. What a difference a week makes. And so I think that, to me, is what's surprising. That, to me, is what is new here. Where that goes... I don't know, but I do think that it invites a lot more people in to think very critically about the intersection of sports and politics and race and gender and and all these things that nerds like me hang out and talk about all the time. But in this moment, it's putting a crack in that romantic Olympic nostalgia. Now, when the games start, will that be swept away? Sports, if anything, it's very good at sport washing. It's very good at drawing you in and getting that excitement going. So I don't know if it ever really stands a a chance, but perhaps we're having more conversations. That means in three years now, we start the conversation from a different place. I mean, Amir, let's keep it real. There were a lot of people on both sides of it that were supposed to stop watching the NFL over Colin Kaepernick, and it seems like their ratings are doing just fine. That's the other thing, right? What does it look like to actually try to discipline these huge institutions. The answer has to be in collective activism, but that's really hard to do when it involves people actually turning off (laughs) and tuning out of something that is very seductive. Amira Rose Davis is a professor at Penn State. She's also a co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Amira, thank you very much. Thank you. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk more name, image, and likeness. We're going to talk Reggie Bush's effort to get his Heisman Trophy back now that we're okay with college athletes getting paid. We're also going to talk about who the name, image, and likeness stars of bygone days would be, who would have been able to capitalize on this the most. To hear that discussion, you have to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this show, plus on other Slate podcasts. You also get your podcast ad-free, and you get unlimited reading on Slate.com. It's only $1 for the first month if you want to try it out. Sign up at Slate.com slash hangupplus. That's Slate.com slash hangupplus. Coming up next, the first week of name, image, and likeness rights for college athletes. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Last week, the NCAA went through a transformational moment that's been a long time coming for the 115-year-old organization. For the first time in NCAA history, college athletes around the country were permitted to profit off their names, images, and likenesses. You've probably seen it referred to as NIL. And it didn't take long for the deals to start rolling in. Twin sisters Haley and Hannah Cavender, Fresno State basketball players with a combined 507,000 Instagram followers, announced deals with Boost Mobile and something called Six Star Pro Nutrition. Adelaide Halverson, a volleyball player at Jacksonville State University, became the first athlete signed by Barstool Sports. Woo. 
And the Heisman Trophy frontrunner, Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler, signed an endorsement deal with Chicken Fingers Restaurant Raising Canes and unveiled a new personal logo. And those were just a few of the biggest names. Now the NCAA and its institutions must adjust to this fundamental shift in a business model that has for so long denied even the smallest amounts of cash to the players at the heart of this multi-billion dollar industry. So Josh, to get this started, did you at all find this sea change in college sports disorienting? Or are you already used to the idea of Bo Nix being a pitchman for a sweet tea company? It's a very specific uh, question. I was not, I am not yet used to the idea of Auburn quarterback Bo Nix being a pitchman for a Birmingham-based sweet tea company. I found it extremely disorienting. It is very, very weird to go from zero to a billion in terms of athletes being able to market themselves and make money. And one general comment and then some uh, specifics. It's just amazing how badly the NCAA botched this, how the NCAA had a lot of time and then less time and then no time to pass comprehensive name, image, and likeness rules. And they just didn't do it. And all of these different states were not used to state legislatures being at all functional. And somehow they were able to do it. And all these different rules are in place. And it's a patchwork, but it seems to be working for a lot of athletes. And so it's just example number 873 of the NCA's ineffectualness. And it's definitely making its own strong argument for why it should not exist. But then onto the specifics, it's just really fascinating experiment in like real-time capitalism, just showing which athletes are capitalizing, how they're capitalizing. ESPN had a good rundown of the different types of deals that are being made. A lot of them are like cameo style things, some literally on cameo, some on similar services where athletes can just like record video messages, do chats, talk on social media with fans. A lot of athletes are selling their own apparel. There's an app called Yoke where athletes can play video games with fans. An Arkansas receiver is partnering with with PetSmart. His dog is also partnering with PetSmart. But Stefan, there are a couple examples in, in the story that are not at all like those. There's Florida State offensive lineman Dylan Gibbons announced he was using the new rule changes to raise money via a GoFundMe to help a friend who has an incurable disease. Marshall offensive lineman Will Ulmer will no longer have to use the alias Lucky Bill or pass up money when he plays live country music. He's been playing music since he was eight and had previously not been allowed to promote any of his shows. And so this is a good reminder of just like how incredibly whack the rules were previously. And it's not just like athletes can be on Cameo and sell shirts now. It's you can have a GoFundMe for your friend who has an incurable disease. There is going to be plenty of work for lawyers and compliance officers and business advisors in the next few months and years. And we are certainly going to be heading toward new forms of rules dodging, expansion, and of policing students. Because if you don't think that the NCA is going to try to continue to weigh in and exert whatever last bits of control it can over this, I think that's naive. The NCA is going to do what the NCAA does which is go for, as Alex Kirshner pointed out in his piece for Slate, in less than two years, Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, calling NIL rights an existential threat to college sports to an important day. So it's going to take credit 
for changing things that it forever refused to change. And then it's going to try to weigh in on how these rules are implemented. But how could it do that? Doesn't it seem like they missed the boat here? Yeah, they totally missed the boat. But there will be attempts to put some order here, whether that's leaning on individual universities to impose certain forms of control over NIL rights. There already are rules in place now with this patchwork of state legislation. I think it's 24 states now have adopted laws, but also school by school. BYU, a religious institution, is putting rules in place on what kinds of things athletes can't endorse, alcohol, tobacco, et cetera, pornography. Not that any athlete should be endorsing pornography, probably. There are going to be rules here. All right, Grandpa. I mean, Joel, do you think that this like Wild West first week is going to be an outlier when we look back a year, five years or 10 years from now? Or is it only going to expand from here? What do you think? Well, I thought you were going to ask me about if it was okay for them to endorse porn, but I'll move on. I'm still undecided on that. I definitely think that things are going to change insignificantly so because I think reading about this over and over again, the one thing that that, that keeps coming up is that marketers, compliance officials, everybody else. Nobody actually knows what college athletes are worth in an open market like this. And so that is still to be determined. We don't know if PetSmart made a smart play getting uh, Arkansas wide receiver that I'd never heard of to be, you know, the face of one of its, you know, products or for Spencer Rattler to be selling chicken fingers and raising canes, which is, okay, a chicken finger, but not that great. But we don't know what that actually is going to mean. Presumably, it will have some benefits for the company and for the athlete, but we don't know long term. And I think they're still trying to figure out how to sort that out down the road. But I mean, I think we're sort of talking around this and it's because it's uncomfortable. But like we know that this is going to be a boon for conventionally attractive white female college athletes. Like they're going to be the ones that seem poised to benefit the most out of this. And that's why I feel like Although this is really cool, and I like the idea of Bo Nix selling sweet tea to people, this does not make up for the fact that the NCAA and its institutions are not paying what they owe the athletes. Mm -hmm. Like, these rights, these NIL rights, should have never been denied. It's a farce, and it's immoral that they were denied these rights in the first place, but it still doesn't address the fundamental inequity that the players that generate this hundreds of millions of dollars for these institutions are still not getting a piece of it. The colleges, they're thinking of it in terms of compliance and they can throw more money at it. They can just, oh, compliance officers will help navigate the rules, will help make that up because they are part of the NCAA, but they ain't cut a check. And that's what I think people, for people that see the NCAA as like a civil rights issue, that's the missing piece here. They're like, we can get really cool about like these companies coming in and trying to find ways to make these athletes pitchmen, but that has nothing to do with what these athletes are actually old in total. You know, I think that's an excellent point, Joel, because what's happening here is the creation of more revenue that can be counted as part of the college sports industrial complex. Not a dime is being denied any of the institutions that participate in college sports. In fact, their reputations are going to be enhanced by athletes being able to go out and market themselves. This is more free marketing for college sports. And that probably explains, in addition to competitive reasons, why 
LSU bought a billboard in Times Square and is calling itself NILSU. And one of the athletes on that billboard was a gymnast who has 5 million followers combined on TikTok and Instagram. And this is going to benefit college sports. The only institution here that is, is, is harmed reputationally is the NCAA because every school is going to try to take advantage of the fact that its athletes can make themselves and the schools can help those athletes make themselves even more popular than they current than they might be. Just do you think LSU is going to be known as NILSU from here on out, or do you think that's going to catch on, Josh? Or, or not really. Well, so they they also do the NFLSU <laughs> to try to recruit five star football players. DBU. And then they also do DBU. I think I, I think we're running out of initialisms here. But Joel, you mentioned that we're still trying to figure out the model for how much these athletes are worth. I think there is a pretty good model. It's This is influencer economics. And the reason that the people that are cleaning up so far are cleaning up doesn't have anything to do with them being college athletes. I mean, that might be a little bit of an, an exaggeration, but it just has to do with how many followers they have on social media. I mean, Olivia Dunn, the LSU gymnast, has the most followers of any college athlete. And so she's primed to take advantage of this. Sharif O'Neal, LSU basketball player, didn't really get off the bench very much this past season, but has millions of followers because he's Shaq's son. And so he stands to benefit a lot here. And so the point that you made is really smart, Joel. And we can see this as like, all right, there, there's fairness. People can make what they're worth so long as they're like a conventionally attractive white woman or like the progeny of a famous athlete. If we're looking at like extraordinary financial success here, then the economics are going to be the same ones that govern the kind of celebrity social media influencer economy. But I do think it's important to note the things like the offensive lineman who can play music now or like that you can mm -hmm. have a GoFundMe without having to run it through your compliance department or the fact that if you want to get money to buy food or to like help your family, you can do a couple cameos or sell some shirts. And so... Or shit, just show up at a restaurant and get a free meal. If somebody recognizes you and wants to pay for your meal now, they can do that now. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I mean, I think this is extremely important just as a conceptual framework and as a shift in terms of how we think about athletes and money and payments and, and work. And so just because it's going to shake out in the same way that all kind of marketing and, and advertising shakes out with the people that are conventionally attractive or, or famous are going to make the most money. It doesn't mean that the, the work is over, but it just means, okay, now college sports looks like just more like American capitalism, basically. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, I don't even know that it's a shift. We've always seen these athletes like that. We always knew Tim Tebow and Johnny Manziel and Brian Bosworth and Pistol Pete were like huge celebrities. It's just that now the NCAA is no longer denying the obvious, that these people are huge moneymakers and they're huge stars on their own. And they're just being granted the rights that deserve them. At the end of the day, if there's anybody that is ready for this and is going to do it well and is poised to take advantage, I have to guess that Nick Saban is probably really excited about this and already has some great ideas for how you can capitalize on this.
I think that's probably true. I mean, Dabo Swinney had said, the, the Clemson coach, that he didn't want his players on social media. I don't know, Joel and Stefan, how players are going to look at coaches that express those attitudes. I, th- I, I think Dabo's going to change and has already changed to adapt with the, to the times. But this idea that coaches can and should police athletes' behavior I think is going to be a turnoff when it comes to recruiting. And you saw LSU with that billboard in Times Square. The reason that it, this is obvious, but the reason that it did that campaign was to flag for in potentially incoming recruits, we will encourage you to market yourself, to sell yourself, to make money off of yourself. And we're going to do that more and better than other schools. And so come and and play for us. And Nick Saban's not going to be left behind here, but there is going to be a generation of coaches. I mean, can you imagine the quotes that we're going to see, Stefan, like from (laughs) gruff football coaches about how all this is a distraction and blah, blah, blah? Yeah, but it's going to be hard for those coaches to really have any kind of quarter because if your athletic department is spending, I don't know what it costs to get a video billboard up in Times Square and basically announcing that we are here to help you. We want to make you like Olivia Dunn or Jamal Adams, the, uh, the, the football player who narrated the video on the billboard. We want you to be them. We want your face to be in Times Square. We will help you achieve that and in the process help you make a lot of money. Maybe this is a sort of a power balancer for the universities and athletes versus the tyrannical coaches or the controlling coaches. I don't know. There's so much that we don't know here about how this is gonna this is gonna shake out, what kinds of things are gonna prove truly lucrative for college athletes, how these kinds of deals will help burnish athletes' reputations. A couple of quarterbacks, Oklahoma's Spencer Rattler and Miami's Derek King, said that they would donate part of their earnings to help undeserved people and undeserved communities. There are a lot of potential ramifications to the way NIL rights and athletes' abilities to capitalize on them are going to help them going forward. I think the last thing we should be thinking about is whether Dabo Sweeney is frustrated that this might be a distraction for his players. The solution for them, if they would, you know, if they want to take it, to take this uh, word of advice, you can just mind your fucking business. You know what I mean? Like, just let the guy sign the deal and stick to X and O's. You know what I'm saying? Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls, and I neglected to shout out my favorite NIL moment of the past week. Joel, I think you might know what I'm talking about here. So there's this company called Dreamfield that Mackenzie Milton and De'Ara King, the quarterbacks, the successful college football quarterbacks, started. And it's basically a platform that connects 
college athletes to potential advertisers. And they're serving as like middlemen. You can put yourself up here and then companies can contact you. It's a good and important service for athletes who are looking to navigate this confusing new world that we're in. And so each athlete puts an hourly rate up there of like how much they would potentially charge if somebody wanted to engage their services. And McKinsey Milton and De'Ara King put $2,000 per hour up there, which is good for them. They should ask for $2,000 an hour and maybe somebody will, will give that to them. But Joel Anderson, do you know who, who had the highest asking price of anybody on the Dreamfield website? Who had the highest asking price? Wow. Okay. I slacked you about it. So this is a test of whether you were ta- paying attention to my slacks, Joel. That's really what I'm asking about is whether you pay attention to me. This isn't fair. I've been out of town. I've been out of town. So I don't think that's fair for you to put me on the spot like this. So and I resent it. Joel Joel loves my slacks, America. Yeah. Joel, <laughs> yeah, Joel. I don't ignore his slacks, I promise you. So the answer is Ole Miss quarterback Matt Corral, who threw five interceptions against LSU in 2020, <laughs> is asking for $10,000 per hour, which... Maybe that shows a a kind of lack of judgment and understanding that led him to throw five interceptions against LSU. But on the other hand, ask for $10,000 per hour, Matt Crowell, maybe somebody will give it to you. But this is the strongest evidence confirming the excellent point that Joel made of like, we're not really sure how much college athletes are worth, but good for Matt Crowell for helping us to set the ceiling. On the other hand, Josh, not everybody can throw five interceptions in a game. I might want to hear about that. That's worth something. He's a very talented young man and a dark horse Heisman contender. So maybe that will be a a bargain. My understanding is that Mississippi's state NIL law is a little restrictive. So I'm just kind of wondering how that's going to work. I'm sure known rules follower Lane Kiffin is going to help. Known rules follower Lane Kiffin is going to help Matt Corral navigate the murky NIL waters in Mississippi, which I understand they weren't even allowed to enter into NIL deals in the state of Mississippi. But I'm sure Kiffin can help him get a little get a little cash on the side one way or another. Stefan, what is your Matt Corral? And depending on if, if this goes about 10 minutes, that'll be about $1,700. So choose, choose your time wisely. I may go even longer. (laughs) In Myanmar over the weekend, Buddhist monks, university students, and other citizens marched, prayed, and walked out of work as protests against a military coup that toppled the country's civilian government in February stretched past 90 days. Athletes in the Southeast Asian nation have been protesting too. The sports pushback began not long after the military retook control of the government from the country's leader, Don Aung San Suu Kyi. Aung San Suu Kyi is the Nobel Peace Prize winner who was detained by the military for 15 years, was released in 2010 to great fanfare, but has been tarnished internationally by her refusal to condemn military genocide against Myanmar's Rohingya minority. Since the coup, The military has cracked down on protesters, killing more than 800 people. Among them were Chit Bobo Nyan, the captain of the under-21 team for one of Myanmar's top clubs. He idolized Paul Pogba of Manchester United. He was shot and killed in March on what's now called Anti-Fascist Resistance Day. 
Also in March, a Myanmar player on a second division soccer team in Malaysia celebrated a goal by flashing a symbol of the resistance, the three-finger salute from the Hunger Games that was adopted by pro-democracy protesters in Thailand and Hong Kong and now in Myanmar. He was suspended for one game because, in the words of the chairman of the Malaysian League's disciplinary committee, football must be above race, religion, and politics. Football must be used to unite people and not to divide them and should not take sides with anybody. According to a story in The Guardian, Myanmar's 10-team domestic league is basically at a standstill. Some players have quit to train to fight the military. Also, about 10 members of the men's national team refused call-ups from Myanmar's final three World Cup qualifiers in late May and early June in Japan. The soccer federation pressured other players to go. There was no way, obviously, that Myanmar was going to reach the World Cup finals, but there is a soccer culture there. Myanmar is ranked 139th of the 210 nations in FIFA, which means there are 71 nations below it. Myanmar made it to the U-20 World Cup in 2015, where it took the lead against the United States before losing 2-1. to one. Before the pandemic, the senior men's team beat higher-ranked Tajikistan in a World Cup qualifier 4-3 and lower-ranked Mongolia 1-0. But with half of the team missing in Japan, any chance of advancing to the third round of Asian qualifying was gone. So the main question was whether players would protest. The risk was more than getting kicked off the national team. It was, as is the case in opposing repressive regimes, of getting jailed or even killed or of family members suffering reprisals. The day before the first game against Japan in Chiba on May 28th, a veteran who was boycotting said, it would be good if some of them came out and gave the three-fingered salute to an international audience. He said he wasn't optimistic, though, because our players aren't united. But when the camera panned the players lined up on the field for the national anthem before the game, Ko Pi Lan Ang, a 27-year-old backup goalkeeper, flashed the Hunger Games salute with the words, we need justice written on his fingers. The footage went viral. Ben Protest and Hisako Ueno of the New York Times wrote a fascinating account of his ordeal, which we'll link to on the show page. Myanmar lost the game to Japan 10 to nothing. Pete Lan Ong stayed with the team for the next two matches, losses of 8-1 to to Kyrgyzstan and 4-0 to Tajikistan. The Times reported that, assisted by a Myanmar dissident who had fled to Japan in the 1990s, the goalkeeper tried to flee the team hotel several times, but was thwarted. At the airport on the way home, when he was asked to show his passport, he flashed a message in English and Japanese on his phone instead, I don't want to go back to Myanmar. The goalkeeper has filed for asylum in Japan. He told reporters that he's worried about the safety of his teammates and his family back in Myanmar, and he fears for his life if he is sent home. Oof. I mean, you think of the things that, like the platform for protest around the country and like the stakes are so high in, in so many places around this world. And I'm like, the idea that, that you're supposed to just totally turn off who you are and your beliefs and ideas and everything and your politics and to just enjoy games, it's just, 
<laughs> it just seems fundamentally dumb. I mean, nothing nothing captivates people. Nothing grabs people's attention like an athlete protesting. Like it's really hard to get people behind things and to get attention to various causes around the world, and that they think that this dude should just suck it up and that this is not the spot for it. It just seems you know ridiculous. But I mean, that's I guess that's just what it's always like, right? That nobody wants their sports sullied by the real world. Yeah, I think that's very true, and that story that you flagged, Stefan, it's a good reminder that we should think a little bit more broadly when we're talking about the stakes of protest and protest at the Olympics. And it'll be obviously very interesting to see how athletes representing other nations choose to represent themselves in their causes too. And I think that's something to actually look for, like which Myanmar athletes will be at the Olympics. You know, we'll be looking at American athletes, but there are other countries that also are suffering and, and athletes are going to be under scrutiny in their own spheres. It's actually sort of jarring when you think of like all the inequity and cruelty that goes on around the globe. And it's just, it's actually more amazing that we don't see more protest in spite of that. But it could be also that that cruelty is why people are afraid to risk it all too. There's people behind these protests as well. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Justin D. Wright. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.